As they make their way out, the rest of us will return to Luke chapter 12, where we've been studying the, the parable of the barns, the parable of the, the rich man with the barns. You guys have hung in there pretty good. That's, that's good to see everybody back. This is tough stuff. Tough stuff. I've titled this message, Waging on Worry, Waging a War on Worry. And I will begin reading to you from Luke chapter 12, verse 22. And Jesus said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, they have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are, are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep on worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, their heart, your heart will be also. The word of the Lord. Boy, that's a big chunk of Scripture, isn't it? So it'll end up being more of a topical than a, than a verse by verse. A lot packed in there. But thankfully, as we've been studying this now for the third week, um, I think it's starting to take some, some root, or root, as it should be said. Right, Ruth? A March 2018 article on CNBC is titled, 30% of Americans are constantly stressed out about money, but you don't have to be. Their research found that 66% of adults and 71% of millennials say they are stressed because they do not have a three-month emergency fund. 46% admit they don't have any savings set aside to cover an unexpected event such as a job loss or medical problem. In addition, less than half of Americans have enough to cover a $1,000 emergency. Fortunately, the article then provided practical steps on how to eliminate worry. Start an emergency fund. Get a grip on discretionary spending. And consider a side job. All decent principles. We talked about some of those last week and, and the week before. All decent principles. But if I'm understanding correctly, the world says to reduce your worry over monetary stress, you should increase your focus upon it. Our passage today is going to reveal how radically countercultural 
Christianity is compared to the world in which we live. Radically different. The world suggests that your anxiety about money can be alleviated by acquiring more of it. And to a point, that is true. Even the rich farmer, who we studied last week, in the previous context, felt a momentary relief because he had enough stored up to provide for many years of ease. Uh, There is little doubt that a six-month emergency fund will lower your blood pressure a little bit. The problem is, the farmer already had a six-month emergency fund. Verse 16 tells us that he was rich from the very get-go. And even when he became richer, it still was not enough to release his grip on some of that money in order to be rich towards God. This is the overarching theme of this section of chapter 12. Trusting God to continue providing so that you can stop worrying about money and focus on kingdom building. Kingdom building. For the rich man, all his wealth did in the end was, well, it passed to the next fool in line. And whoever that was, do you think he or she learned generosity from dad? Unlikely. There comes a problem with unearned inheritance. Growing up, we saw it as an alarming trend up at the farm as I grew up at the farm in the farming communities. The first generation worked their fingers to the bone to pay for the farm. The second generation struggled merely to maintain the farm. And if it did last until the third generation, those who were unaware of what it took, the hard labor it took, uh, that farming took to acquire the land, if they were unaware of that, they sat up at the bar and they lost it. Alarming trend, alarming trend that repeated itself many times. And as we read last week, King Solomon was just, he was grieved as he lamented about the idea of passing his hard work to a fool, one who didn't labor alongside of him. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18 He writes, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, he's speaking of himself, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. Warning, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he turned out to be a fool, a complete fool with what um, Solomon had left him. Um... Leaving the fruit of your labor behind. Solomon says, that's a great evil. Leaving it behind. What a relief Solomon could have enjoyed if he would have lived to hear Christ proclaim that you can send it on ahead. It'll be waiting for you there safely when you arrive. Or as Jesus says, you can imitate the fool in Luke 12 and... And die and leave it all behind. 
There's a proverb that's, uh, that's often misunderstood. It's Proverbs 13, verse 22. It says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I have a wealthy friend, quite wealthy, who kept getting wealthier. And uh, he used this proverb to justify uh, an already large and increasing estate that he had. Um, and I thought to myself, how can a man's morality be qualified through leaving behind a, a large inheritance that lasts into his children's children or his grandchildren? How can that possibly square with Jesus' words that we've been studying in the last couple of weeks? So I looked intently. That was five, seven years ago. I looked intently at this proverb and I ignored John MacArthur's notes. Um, because in my opinion, he gets it wrong on this one. It happens to everyone. The full proverb actually says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Proverbs usually employs a comparison or a contrast in order to communicate the truth. Most proverbs can't be understood real well from examining just one line. You have to weigh the contrast between the two or the comparison of both lines. Uh, Then I discovered this cross-reference. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. And I found that these proverbs don't instruct us to stockpile a whole bunch in barns, leave a whole bunch of money to our children's children, but to trust in God's divine reappropriation to his righteous. He who is righteous will not lack, because God is watching over him, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. So the inheritance that the good man leaves for his family, it's not barns full of riches but instead the moral righteousness that he has transferred down to his children and his grandchildren. Folks, the greatest treasure that we can leave behind, um, leave to our children, is the mighty Christian faith founded on biblical morals such as generosity, morals such as a good work ethic, so that our children and our grandchildren become righteous towards God. Righteous before God. And God promises for those who are righteous, He will take care of them because the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. He will appropriate it or reappropriate how He sees fit. God will take care of them. Think about it honestly. Barring certain. Uh, Special circumstances, there are always special circumstances. Uh, A child might have uh, a birth defect or deformity. They can't work. Other things that can occur. Um, Barring uh, circumstances like that, which would you prefer to leave your children and your grandchildren? A shiny, large estate that they never learned how to work for, like Solomon, Or would you prefer to transfer to them a godly view of Christ, including a work ethic that prompts them to go out and earn it for themselves? 
Remember, that which you decide to leave behind will reveal to them what you most treasured. You know, I for one, I'm very thankful. My parents were never parents of of large means, but God always took care of them. And I consider myself immensely thankful that I had a father and a mother who passed down to me both to value and to enjoy labor, to enjoy work. And then they forced me to go out and learn how to make it. Very thankful that I had parents that did that. And and they passed down principles such as as this to me, rather than leaving me a huge estate. Um, This may not be what everybody wanted to hear today. We've we've got to cross this threshold uh, for this passage to make any sense to us today. It's very simple. There is no moral obligation nor scriptural motivation for a Christian to leave their treasure behind. Let me say that again. There is no moral obligation nor scriptural motivation for the Christian to leave their treasure behind. It's actually quite the opposite. Jesus is always training his disciples to demonstrate their faith in a God who provides by sending it ahead. By sending it ahead. You and I, we can't have it both ways, folks. We cannot both leave our treasure behind and send it on ahead. Should be that simple. But it doesn't get through to us very well. Um, This passage is about sending it on ahead. That's why Jesus begins in verse 22 by saying, For this reason... Well, for what reason? The reason is that the rich farmer couldn't bank on tomorrow, and he couldn't take it with him. That's the reason. The only thing we're assured of if we store it up in barns as he did, is we're assured that we're going to leave it on behind. That's the only guarantee that we have. For this reason, then, do not worry, we are told by Jesus. Verse 22 Do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Reflecting back to our scripture reading from Acts 4, verse 22, there's possibly no better illustration in all of scripture of seeing Christians following Jesus' command to not worry than the one that I read to you in Acts chapter 4. There in that passage, it's it's even astounding that those in Israel would would sell their land, that they would part with their land. That's crucial because the promised land, it, it emblemizes, it's symbolic, it signified Israel's inheritance from God. It was the promised land. It was the land for Israel. And and they were now cashing out that land and exchanging it for a future promised kingdom. It's very likely that many of those Christians 
in the early church were present and heard Jesus preach this very sermon that we are looking at today. Where Jesus told them and now tells us in verses 31 through 33 how to seek his kingdom. Their family inheritance was their portion in the promised land of Israel. That's one reason we see so much emphasis on the inheritance in the Old Testament. Concerning inheritance, especially the land. They were to keep the land in the family. If they screwed up, in the year of Jubilee, what would happen? Every 50th year, they would get it back again. There was a provision in the law that gave them a restart. Okay, you screwed up, let's start over and try this again. God was teaching them about their inheritance of the promised land. Your family would get your land back. The land was the Jews' inheritance. That's extremely important. Because when you begin to read Acts 4 verse 32, and the early church was selling their land, that ought to raise our eyebrows, folks. Let me read this to you again, reminding you this early congregation was Jewish. And they were in Israel. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him and was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales And lay them at the apostles' feet, for they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The continuing story in Acts chapter 5 then teaches about Ananias and Sapphira. And what Ananias proves is that this cashing in was optional. It was optional. He could exchange his treasure today and send it on ahead, or he could retain it for himself and discovered as he did so, they carried him out the door. You fool, today your soul is required of you. That look like the rich farmer? What's really interesting about Ananias and Sapphira was that they actually sold the land. They sold the land. But then they held some of the money back. But what I really love about the passage is Peter made very clear the choice was theirs. It, it was their choice. They didn't have to invest in the kingdom by giving to their church to meet the needs of the less fortunate. God didn't even take their lives because they kept back a portion for themselves. Folks, if that were God's approach, they'd be hauling every one of us out the door rolled up in a carpet. It wasn't that they held back some and kept a portion for themselves. Their sin was pretending to serve God. Pretending to serve Him by doing what others were doing, selling their land, but then lying about the amount. They wanted to be seen 
as giving like everybody else, ministering like everybody else, but they still wanted to keep some of the mammon. What did we learn? You can't serve both God and mammon. You can't have them both. And an important point to also recognize is that Christians continued to have their own private homes and businesses. Philemon, if you remember the letter to him, he was hosting a church in his own house. There was still private property. Nothing ever says they sold all of their land or all of their homes. So, so Acts is not declaring communalism. As I stated before, communalism, collectivism, socialism, Marxism, whatever ism you want to call it, it, it circumvents the heart. That's the problem. It attempts to seize that, that which belongs to you and redistribute it forcibly because they don't believe that God will actually change your heart and you can do it willfully. That's a problem with Marxism. It's, it's atheistic as it redistributes wealth or attempts to, and it trusts that the government and man can do, and God cannot. But God can do. God can do. So the command is, don't worry about storing up in barns. Now the basis for the command is, God will provide. God will provide. And in verse 24, Jesus says, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Again, the enormous contrast between mankind and the animal kingdom. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Then if you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Folks, our culture is so worried about adding another hour to our life. Lifespan, it's, it's one of the components that, that, that drives this relentless diet craze. It's relentless. Everybody is doing all they can trying to save this life rather than lose it for Christ. You can't do it. You can't save this life. You can't add an hour to your life by worrying about it. Al Mohler, as he preached it at the pastor's conference Gerald and I were at last week, about a week ago, and I hope to order the DVD where we can all watch it one day, maybe in Bible Life Group. He was, he was outstanding. We could watch it together. Um, but he made a great point. Generations before ours understood suffering, dying, and death. They understood it. We are the first generation that can't understand nor accept it, suffering or death. Chronic pain, birth defects, disease, cancer. Folks, that's always occurred. Those have always occurred. But this generation views suffering as if something has gone wrong. And rather than seeking out God's strength to endure it, as the early saints did, our hope rests in, in modern medicine. Our hope is in therapeutic psychology and, and pharmaceuticals. Because we, we've concluded that if we're suffering, something must be wrong. Capitalizing on the same error, 
is the all-natural and organic industry. It's not just pharmaceuticals. They declare if you're sick, there must be something wrong. You must have something in your diet because nobody should ever be sick. Then they blame every ailment under the sun on something that you might have at one time ingested. You know, I kind of get a charge out of that because my dad grew up in the all-organic generation, as did his dad and as did my dad's grandpa. They all died. Every single one of them. They died from strokes. They died from heart disease. Some died from cancer. Others got polio. There was prostate cancer, all kinds of different things. They all died. In fact, Jesus, he healed multitudes of every kind of disease, we are told. Sickness, affliction, birth deformity, epilepsy, all kinds of things that he healed. And believe it or not, People in the Bible, they were sick, even before, or even though, excuse me, they all ate organically. They were still sick. Centuries before, GMO foods and fertilizers and pesticides, whatever view you take on that, the notion that if we all just go back to organic and eat more healthy and more naturally, that we'll all be healthy and disease-free and cancer-free, and that we'll all have perfectly healthy families, it's what my mom used to call a bunch of bunk. It is not going to happen. Now, if you're diabetic, if you have another health condition, follow the doctor's orders. Take good advice. Use common sense. Eat healthy. Modern medicine has great benefits. But the notion that something must be wrong if people suffer, or that we are somehow going to reverse God's curse on humanity through therapies or pharmaceuticals or even whole foods. It's not reality. It's not reality. Folks, when Jesus says not to worry, he doesn't promise to alleviate all physical suffering. He he doesn't promise to alleviate all, all illness or death. He promises he'll meet our needs. He promises he'll meet our physical needs. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, and is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? Remember, this has to be interpreted in contrast to the farmer who stored up in barns. It it doesn't nullify God's commands for us to work hard, to use our hands to earn and to share. The rich farmer's satisfaction rested in the fact that he had full barns. That was his satisfaction. Now, he declared he can eat and he can drink and he can be merry for many years to come without having to worry at all how it is provided. Jesus says you and I don't have to worry either. Even though we don't have full barns. We don't need to trust in a savings when you have trusted in a Savior. Saying in verse 29, Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. Do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. 
but your Father knows that you need these things. Folks, Christ is calling for a savings that is radically different. Radically different. Most of our barns, they have an address on Wall Street. And it's tempting to place, tempting for us to place our faith for tomorrow in, in mutual funds, in the stability of our employer. When the stock market is up, well, then our countenance is up. When our employer announces a furlough, well, then the world is going to end. You know, back when I worked at Delta Airlines, they announced bankruptcy to us in, in a room, all of us together, all of about there were hundreds of mechanics. And they told us they're closing the hangar that we were in. Many of my coworkers said, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to survive. I can't pay for my house. I'll never find another job situation that will pay for my standard of living. I won't be able to sustain. One man I work with even took his own life. But isn't life more than food and clothing? Jesus says it is. Isn't life more than material stuff? Are you going to give up on life just because you can't maintain payments on a home? If worse comes to worse, tell a creditor to come. Pick up the third and fourth car. While they're at it, they can load up the Harley too. Honda first. Restoration to Christ is far more important than any food or clothing or anything else that we have. In fact, Christians realize that everything before our eyes, anyhow, it's all going to burn. It's going to melt with intense heat, according to Peter. And do you know what we share with the ravens? Do you know what we share with the grass and the lilies in common? We're here today and gone tomorrow. Here today and gone tomorrow. Everything that we see is temporal. Everything before our eyes. That could make us despair if it were not for one thing. Verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. We know our future is the kingdom. We know our future is secure in the kingdom. We're not held in hostage by the uncertainty of how all this stuff's going to work out in the end. In fact, the word for worrying in verse 29, where Jesus says not to keep worrying... The Greek word literally means to just suspend in the air. So Jesus is assuring us there's no need to worry because we have not been left hanging, folks. We know His kingdom is coming for certain. That's why we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Because His kingdom is coming. And His will will be done. And His will will be done by us because the kingdom is coming. And Christ promises if we seek His kingdom, 
all these other things, everything we long for in food and clothing, well, he'll provide that too. We'll have enough. Besides, Paul told us what? With food and covering, with this we will be content. It's enough. It's enough. Jesus assures us as we seek his kingdom, our Father promises to supply what we will eat and what we will wear, appropriate covering. Meanwhile, our responsibility is to get our minds right, to get our heads out of the world and into the heavenly kingdom that already belongs to us. Store up your treasure in heaven. This is what the early church understood. The command is do not worry. The basis of the command is knowledge. God promises to provide. How then, in a practical sense uh, of faith and of obedience, do we wage this war? How do we join this war on worry? The worries of the world. You don't want to worry? The practical application is in verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. You know what? I don't worry at all about my brand new 2019 Platinum Escalade getting scratched out in the parking lot. If I had one, I would probably worry. I would worry how I'm going to pay the insurance, how much depreciation each scratch added to it. Who would want to steal it? The thieves that would break in, the rust that would destroy. Folks, as we pass through the world... The worry-free person travels lightly. Sell your possessions. Let the rust, let the dilapidation occur in somebody else's backyard. Let the clothes that you have that are going out of style go out of style in someone else's closet. Invest your money and your time in charity. The word charity there is alms. Alms means to provide for the needs of the poor. Very similar language as Jesus uses with a rich young ruler. Sell your possessions, he was told, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. You know what? Matthew records of that young man, that poor soul who was very rich. He walked away grieving. It says he was grieving because he had much. And he loved it much. The earth is where his treasure was stored. Like the man with the barns. Folks, I know. Maybe you're visiting here today. First time. This is hitting you like a ton of bricks. I hadn't even considered it. Because you've never mentally assessed how wrapped up your heart is in this world. Probably none of us have properly assessed that. 
It's okay to sit back and take a deep breath. Then there are some of us who are just saying, Yahoo, garage sale. Praise Jesus. Let's get it out of my way. I'm sick and tired of the payments, insuring this stuff. It only rusts. It only depreciates. It rots. That project that's been sitting in my garage for 15 years, I'm going to put that on Craigslist and make it somebody else's problem. Can't even step in my closet. It's so full. Folks, last week after the message, somebody told me this is completely liberating. That I, that I don't have to have all of this stuff. I don't need it. Christ promises we don't need it. Simplify. All, all I've got to do is trust God for food and for covering. Man, that, that's easy. Most of us have far more than that. It's not a hard command of Jesus. Trust that God will provide food and covering. And as you trust in God, Jehovah Jireh, or Yahweh Jireh, the God who provides, and eliminate all of this worry, all of this stuff, then you discover the flip side of this passage. This is the best part of this passage, and it makes everything worthwhile. Give it to the poor... And our Father promises to reward us with unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. How much better can it get than that? And as I've stated on previous occasions, folks, there's only one heaven. Not multiple heavens. That's false doctrine. But not everyone's experience in heaven is going to be the same. I've said that multiple times over the years. Some have sent their treasure on ahead where it's going to be waiting for them because that's where their heart is. And if you really want to unload on worry, you really want to unload on worry, you can unload the worry of the poor. That's what the early church did. For Scripture says there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Because when you focus your heart and your mind on the kingdom of God, start to think to yourself, you know, how, how could I alleviate somebody's worry? How could I help them not to worry? It gets your mind off yourself. The poor, the needy, the orphan and the widow. And when you focus on the kingdom, folks, listen to this. You don't get anything else today. Listen to this. There is a triple benefit. Triple benefit to all this. Number one, you no longer have to worry about maintaining what you've got and acquiring more of it. That which you give away. Number two, the widow no longer has to worry where her next meal is coming from. Number three, God tells us, you don't have to worry about your treasure that you just gave away because I've got it stored up for you and it's going to be here when you get here. Not only don't you have to worry about it here, the widow doesn't have to worry about what she's going to get or the poor person 
You don't have to worry because you're going to see it again. It remains secure. God's going to restore all back to us when we get up there in his kingdom. There you're going to find that it had not been rusted, that moths had not eaten, and no thief broke in and stole it. The early church didn't lack because they believed Christ when he promised God would take care of their needs. Nobody lacked. And the means God uses to care for his flock is the community of believers called his church. Once you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ's church, you no longer need to lament about giving your possessions away because if you were ever to become hungry, you know the rest of the church will obey Christ and they're going to take care of you. They're going to do the same for you. If you give your money away and give it to the poor, if something happens where you need something, later on it's going to come back to you through the church. And nobody amongst us ever goes hungry. No worries. No one here should ever worry where their next meal is coming from. If you do, come and see us. Christians don't need to worry. The early church cared for one another so that nobody had to worry. In the Bible, we see this displayed within the local congregation. We see charity demonstrated church to church, even churches across continents, as the early churches were sending money for relief of the saints in Jerusalem, even across continents. That doesn't suggest we just give frivolously, you know, without discretion of any kind. Those who could work had to. But as you see in Scripture, the saints expressing their hearts to the poor and giving those who had, giving to those who lacked. And as they ministered to Christ's body, Christians didn't have to worry. They didn't have to worry. There are privileges of being in Christ's body. I'll tell you that right now. If you haven't discovered that, you should. It's not uncommon for the church to receive requests um, from folks who, who never enter a church on a Sunday. And there are times we can help them, depending upon what the need is. Sometimes we can on a basic need. But they have a lot of worries. The world has a lot of worries, folks. And you know what I often tell them, or most often tell them now? If you would trust in Jesus Christ... And if you would believe in Him as your Savior, and if you would come into the company of God's people, His church, and if you would share your life with the church, the church would share their life with you. And as the body comes to know you intimately, and you have a need, they'll rise to meet it. I've seen it again and again. People in this church rising up to meet a need of someone who, ha who had it. Because when we share with one another what God has blessed us with, we share what we have in common. No worries. 